0: Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Thank God. Uh, for the benefit, listeners, we tried this first time round, and for some reason, my my audio, uh, AirPods weren't actually working. Yeah, couldn't hear him at all. All uh, right. Well, you can. I can hear you as vaguely as I normally do, but I can still hear you. Okay. Good. good. Uh, we'll we'll get back to computers soon enough, and then I can go over to actually shouting properly. <laughs> right. For those of you who were a bit disconcerted with last week's episode, though that was actually none of you since last week got the highest amount of likes in, well, a long time, we are going to, in the true Khan spirit, when something is working, go to the opposite idea. Uh, no, I'm just joking. Uh, this week we're going to do the 1970, 1990, 1997 Tory government. We're going to do a bit of history and economics for the next couple of weeks uh, because we can and because no one can stop us. Um, <laughs> you know, we're not going to see injunctions being pursued against the Big Issues podcast. That's what meant for this, at least. Um, oh, I've said worse. Okay. We're going to start talking about it. So we're going to break it down into five sections. So we're going to talk about how the Tories got to power, talk about the first term, the second term, the third term, the fourth term. It's going to be filled with anecdotes, with analysis, with ideas, and with our views on the politicians, etc. Um a lot of research has gone into this, but it's our podcast, So What Do You Expect? And let's just start before I dig myself into a deeper hole.
1: <laughs> yeah, so do you want me to ask you the first
0: question, then? Uh, yeah, are we doing a section at a time, or are we
1: going to take it question by question? I don't mind, we can do uh, maybe a maybe section at a time, maybe. Okay, no. so... Um...
0: Can you still hear me, by the way? Am I not... Is my voice not sound? No, I can still hear you. I can still hear you. Okay, jolly good.
1: Okay, so... Um, yeah. Um, okay, fine. <clears throat> okay, so how did the Tories win power in 1979? Ask the sub-questions
0: within the sub-questions, man. Hmm? We need to ask the sub-questions in within... the... Ah, right, Okay. Okay. Sorry, have so, you ever been on this podcast for 57 episodes? 58 episodes?
1: No, I haven't, done, I've missed a few. No,
0: I don't, I don't think you have, I don't think you have.
1: <laughs> okay, so um, was, was the economic issue in 1976 with the IMF crisis and the high inflation rates? Did that cause damage to the Labour Party? Oh, of
0: course, of course. I mean, you have to remember, by 1976, when Jim Callaghan became the Prime Minister after taking over from Howard Wilson, inflation reached 26.9, 26.9%, right? And yeah. it was about 15% in 77. It was 8% in 78. Then it went back to 13.5% in 1979. So we, we had an inflation crisis. In in late 76, what happened? The pound crashed, and Britain had to get a £2 billion loan, now about £15 billion in today's money, from the IMF which led to the biggest dispute in cabinet in the Labour Party. That, yeah. had it not been for Jim Callaghan privately talking to Tony Crossland, the then foreign secretary, it is entirely possible the cabinet may have rejected the loan. And with a, a majority of minus one at the time, you know, sorry, no, it was a majority oh, yeah. of one, because it didn't lose the seat until 77. With a majority of one at the time, it would have brought down the government. But then, yeah. of course, the Lib Lab Pact came in with David Steele and Jim Callahan for twelve, well, about eighteen months, really stabilizing the country. Inflation was coming down, interest rates were coming downwards, growth was reaching four, five, six percent. So the economy was bouncing back. Then, of course, the Pact ends between Steele and uh, Callahan because David Steele. Everyone thought by by about September seventy eight. Jim Callaghan was going to go to the country, call a general election, actually win the election. And actually, Callaghan, in the summer of 78, and I think it was about July, had an interview with Thames Television, and he actually didn't rule it out. In a way, Callaghan was more explicit in his wanting to call an election than Gordon Brown was in 2007. Okay. So he bottles the election at the TUC, says not to call the general election, and then comes the winter of discontent because Fords violates government pay policy, of keeping pay below 5% increases. Then the um, new P, the National Union of Public Employees, they go on strike, which leads to the grave diggers going on strike, which leads to the water workers going on strike, which leads to the teachers going on strike, and the nurses going on strike, leads to mass secondary picketing, and the collapse of the Labour government. Yeah. Um. I mean, of course, remember this. In September 1978, the Labour Party were polling at 47.5%, the Conservatives 42.5%. By February 1979, Labour were on 33% and the Tories were on 53%.
1: Really?
0: Yeah. That's how much effect the winter of discontent had on uh, the Labour Party, that in six months... They'd gone from forty-seven and a half percent to thirty-three, and the Tories had gone from forty-two and a half to um fifty-three. Oh no, sorry, that was October seventy-eight, not September, so October seventy-eight. It was Labour forty-seven and a half, Tories forty-two and a half, February nineteen seventy-nine, Tories fifty-three,
1: Labour thirty-three. Oh, okay. Okay.
0: So actually, it was actually only over five months, not six months. Yeah. So there's no doubt the economic crises with the high inflation, the high interest rates that led to the downfall of that Labour government, but ultimately it was the winter discontent and the failure to deliver on Scottish devolution that led to that no confidence vote where the government had lost by one.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: 311,
1: 310. Yeah. Uh, should Should we do alternate questions instead? Yeah. Hey, go on, dog. Oh, the question
0: for you, but I like I like that's good. How much do you think then that the winter discontent with the grave diggers not working and the water workers on strike and the builders on strike and the teachers on strike and the nurses on strike, the whole country on damn strike, how much do you think that helped factual Mrs. Thatcher, win the election?
1: Well, the winter discontent uh, was a significant factor in the Conservative Party's victory in 1979 um, mm. the series of strikes like you said, including uh, graves diggers, hospital workers uh, refuse collectors um, did cause widespread disruption across the public and fucking refuse collectors they wouldn't even collect the bins yeah exactly, so then the shortage of essential services with uncollected rubbish piling up in the streets bodies left and buried, in and hospitals uh, forced to cancel operations uh, the, and that that obviously immediately cut down Labour Party's popularity, and mm-hmm. the situation was made worse by the severe weather conditions, which mm-hmm. made it difficult to travel, and it made it difficult to heat your home, and it made and it, uh, caused a, a massive increase in the number of um, uh, sick elderly people, which would usually go to the hospital during this time, but they couldn't because they could of the breathing strike. So mm-hmm. the winter discontent contributed. To this sense of public disillusionment with the Labour Party and the desire for change and it was reflected in the results in 1979 mm-hmm. uh, where surely Conservatives win with 43 seats And um, But I, Labour's share of the vote hardly
0: went down though, didn't it? Exactly,
1: One Labour's point. share of the vote I mean, it, it did hardly go down 37.9 people...
0: to 36.9 is hardly an overwhelming fuck you is
1: it? No, no, true, true but it is everybody else who would have voted for other parties, voting for conservatives, getting mm-hmm. Labour out. They did tactical voting. Correct. This is true. I think, in a way, it was kind of a delayed "fuck you"
0: because, uh, yeah, in 1983, the Labour Party went from 36.9 to
1: 27.4. Yeah,
0: it percentage and share of the votes. But then that's more tribute to the fact that when the country had three million unemployed, the miners were on strike, Liverpool was burning, and the Labour Party were talking about mandatory reselection of candidates. Yeah. For those who have not seeing the video, I currently have my head in my hands. <laughs> that's. That's why we lost our election in 83, because the country was being put shoved to the wolves and we were talking about mandatory reselection and how to let the deputy leader of the party for one whole year. Yeah. Oh, dear. Anyways, um, but no, I think the winter discontent played a huge role in it, personally, in the. The Tory party, if anyone's read the, the 1978 draft manifesto, because of course the Conservative Party, with Lord Carrington, Peter Carrington, Chris Patton, Michael Dobbs, and Keith Joseph, and Maggie Thatcher, and Willie Whitelaw, and Sir Geoffrey Howe, had all drafted a manifesto for the 1978 election. Right? Yeah. And it was pretty much everything that was in the 1979 manifesto, except for one thing, James. What? Trade union reform.
1: It had nothing on trade union. Nothing. Oh, that's interesting. Nothing. The seventy-eight
0: manifesto contains union sections about how government should work well with the unions and how government should not constantly seek to regulate the unions and how we should live, how we should liberalise the unions from restraints and, ret- and controls. Yeah. Now, of course, after the winter of discontent, what happened? The, the Tories talked about, you know, banning secondary picketing, having strikes before ballots and all these things, you know. Um, so it changed the Tory party's attitude to the trade union movement. You know, wet moderates like Jim Pryor, Chris Patton, Michael Dobbs, uh, Peter Carrington, Willie Whitelaw, Peter Thornecroft. They suddenly became not anti-trade union, but certainly disgusted at the militant sections. Yeah. When in where was in the summer of seventy-eight, they were emphatically pro-trade union. Yeah. And I think that the trouble with the winter discontent was except unless your name is Michael Fort or Peter Shaw or Tony Betton, most people who were pro-union found what they had done was utterly indefensible. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pro-Trade Union to the core of my thinking, but I can't defend that. I can't defend not allowing children to have bone marrow operations or making people boil the water because the piping wasn't done correctly or not burying people in graves. Yeah, absolutely. Utterly indefensible behaviour. And, you know, Jim Callahan famously goes to Guadeloupe to the, the World Leaders Conference and comes back and uh, this is during. This is the thing. This is mid January, so this was peak winter discontent, and um, he famously says, uh, "I don't think it's wise to run down your country with talk of mounting chaos." The next day, the Sun run the infamous headline: "Crisis? What crisis?"
1: I mean, I mean, to be fair for the Sun, that's the only decent headline we've ever had. Yeah, true, uh, but. By the Sun's standards, which
0: of course is dip so low you can not see the bar, it was a good headline. Because it was yeah. so bullshit. It was a nonsense headline, but, but, it encapsulated the feeling.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The Prime Minister, Jim Callaghan, was so smart, he was smart enough not to say crisis, what crisis, because that would be that would be d- stupid. But that's <laughs> what they interpreted it as. Yeah.
1: So, so Darren, to what extent did the Tories slowly shift in uh, right wards on policy and showing a, diff- a start of division? Did it inspire people to vote Tory?
0: Oh, good question. Well, it, you think about this is the 1979 Tory manifesto wasn't uh, what we'd call Thatcherite. The 1979 Tory, Mrs. Thatcher only ran on one f- pure Thatcherite manifesto. And that was 1987. Yeah, 79 had nothing about privatization of BT, privatization of water and gas, privatization of, uh, you know, the, uh, electricity. It had nothing about going to a 40p tax rate in a decade. It had nothing about breaking up the TGWU. And that's the Transport General Workers Union. It had nothing about deindustrialization. Right. Because, as Michael Dobbs, who was the key man at the Conservative Research Department, said, if the public had known what facturism was later, they would have ran away in horror. Yeah. So it was vague. And 1983, 1983 was so flipping vague that John Redwood, hardly a moderate, he's on the right of the Tory party, said, we won on a blank check. So, 87 was the Tory right-wing manifesto. But interestingly, Thatcher on Panorama in 77 says this. She goes, she was asked, do you think, she was asked about her difference between her views and Ian MacLeod's views. Now, Ian MacLeod was Edward Heath's chancellor until 18th of July, 1970, when, of course, he died, right? And MacLeod was seen by many as very much on the left of the Tory party, the butlerite views, the Macmillanites, and probably, in my view personally, the smartest person ever to be chancellor yeah in terms of his command of the facts his command of communication he was a genius Ian McLeod and Thatcher liked McLeod a lot and Thatcher was asked well do you see yourself as right wing and she said if you believe in the police they say you're right wing if you believe in accountability in schools they say you're right wing if you believe in lower taxes they say you're right wing if you believe in giving people the right to own their council house they say you're right wing If you you ask me, do I believe in these things? I do. And if you say that makes me right-wing, then I'm right-wing. Now, did you hear that, by the way? Yeah. yeah. The trouble with that is, though, is most people believe in those things. (laughs) And Thatcher, Reagan and Gingrich were the masters of this in making deep right-wing policies, not those four, but other right-wing policies, Mainstreamable,
1: right? Yeah.
0: Famously, uh, when President Clinton signed welfare reform into law, ninety-two percent of people supported welfare reform. Eighty-seven percent of the people on welfare supported welfare reform.
1: Yeah.
0: You win an argument, you know. Ronald Reagan, when he was president, ran the notion for twelve years, for eight years. Government is the problem. You know, yeah, and Thatcher. Yeah changed the psychology of the conservative party from a very much a right of center centrist party you know free markets with the welfare state deep social conscience for the poor combined with a need to encourage enterprise very much my sort of thinking the christian democrat thinking of germany which is always my strand of thinking which is you know we've got to unleash enterprise we've got to deregulate but we have to wipe out poverty and ensure good public services and unions to a more right-wing Republican thinking of tax cuts, deregulation, privatisation is the solution to every problem, all these things. Now, did it contribute to the Conservatives winning an election? I'd say no, because, as Michael Dobbs says, if the the people knew what they were voting for in 1979, they'd have run away in horror. Yeah. So it may have energised the Tory base... With, with, quote, the new round of ideas, I'll accept that. But I do not think you're the centrists, which, of course, decide the election, is the middle-of-the-road voters, I do not believe that they would have voted for that. I generally think people voted Tory in 79 because of the winter of discontent.
1: Oh, right, OK. I mean, Without I, I, that, I, I, I do I honestly agree believe with Jim that, Callahan
0: yeah. would have won. And on the question... Uh, if Jim had won in, se- in se- if Jim had called the gone to the country in 78 and won, which he would have, because remember this, James, you know he had a majority of three seats, if he got a 1% swing from Conservatives to Labour, he'd have got a majority of 30. Yeah. And, you know, let's take the 47.5, 42.5 poll, that's Tories up 7, Labour up 10, 10 minus 7 is 3, divide 2 is 1.5, majority of 40, 40 seats. Yeah. That's the through five years of Labour government, and what would have happened? North Sea oil money, that £100 billion a year of North Sea oil, would have been spent correctly.
1: Yeah, true, true.
0: I mean, well, we, I we, 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 if generally, if we'd gone to the country in 78, Britain, I genuinely think this, and not all the elections, but this is one, this election and 2010 are the two elections I genuinely believe, and 51 are the three elections I genuinely believe Britain would have been transformed.
1: Yeah. Because well, I if think, North I think Seoul had used
0: properly, we would not have had 3 million employed, we would not have had to privatise our assets, which means a lot of our economy would still be nationalised. We would not have had to be having savage cuts in public expenditure every single fucking year. We would not have mm. had trade union reform, which means secondary picketing would still be legal, thank God, and we wouldn't have seen tax cuts come down to 40%. Yeah, true. We would be much more of a centre-left society
1: if we'd won in 78. Yeah, definitely. But there we are. I think, I think personally, when it comes to um, calling the election in 78, um, if Callaghan had won that election, I think first of all the government would have continued policies aimed at addressing these addressing the economic difficulties. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so they would have carried austerity measures and gov- and government intervention in the economy. However, mm. it's also possible that if Callaghan was in charge for in seventy eight, that the issue of um, the winter discontent might have never might not have happened in the first place. No, and it's it also have. possible that the government would have could have faced similar challenges to Thatcher, in such as the thing of and um, such as inflation. Mm. Um, but I I find that I find that unlikely that the Labour Party in charge of inflation would go that high of the Thatcher, uh, as it did under Thatcher. But in terms of foreign policy, though, what people might forget, the Falklands crisis would have still happened. I think I don't believe it wouldn't do. You not think
0: it wouldn't have for this reason. Nineteen eighty-one. What does Margaret Thatcher do in her desire for more cuts in public expenditure? She decides to cut back the last major ship, last major fleet of ships sailing round the Falklands. Mm. What happens six months later? General Galtieri invades the Falklands.
1: True, true, true. But I think see the the thing is, the Falklands crisis did happen. Which, to be fair, now saying that the fact that yes, she did the Falklands cut back crisis the happened we would have lost. Yeah. Because there were so many women in the Labour Party expressed.
0: and the wets on the Tory Party that said we've got to settle with the Argentine. And this is something I will give Margaret Thatcher credit for. And I don't give her a lot of credit, because I do take the piss out of her. On Falklands, she was spot on. Flawless yeah. on Falklands. You do not settle with people who are against you. You end them.
1: Yeah, true. And I would say and it's, like, I would say, it's but... like when she
0: sank the Belgrano, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, she sank!" Isn't it such a bad thing? No, they are enemy ships. And they say, "Well, it was turning backwards, so surely no, 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 no." When you're at war, there is no, mo- there is nothing wrong with defeating the enemy by any means necessary. Well, there are such things as war crimes.
1: Hmm? there are such things as
0: war crimes. There are such things as war crimes, and war crimes should be condemned. But that wasn't a war crime. No, no, no. I'm not saying that was a war crime. There are war crimes. Abu Ghraib was a war crime, and you've heard me condemn mm-hmm. Abu Ghraib on the podcast before.
1: hmm Yeah, yeah, There are war Below crimes, defeat, of Below course, the you never should... be... No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's not... And
0: I, okay, let me rephrase. I don't mean... I'm talking about <laughs> prisoners of war, James. I'm talking about in the battlefield. Okay. So I'm not wait, what, saying what about, that like, prisoners of war you have to uphold the Geneva Convention and the UN rules on torture.
1: Torture so is a disgrace. Torture should be outlawed. What about chemical weapons then and go in during war? What about what? What about if they use chemical weapons? Hmm. Mm.
0: No. No 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 no. I, I I reject chemical weapons. I reject I reject chemical weapons and atomic weapons and nuclear weapons because I believe the destruction the purpose of war is to defeat the enemy. It's not to defeat innocent civilians. And you often find with chemical weapons that you often cause more damage to innocent people than you do to the enemy. Yeah, true, true. So I'd be against that. And I mean on the concept of the battlefield. I'm not talking about hurting innocent civilians. That's a war crime. And now you? I don't think we've ever, used chem- we've ever used chemical weapons in warfare. Mussolini yeah, yeah. has. Assad we're has. We're we?
1: Yeah, we Oh, shit. Did we? What did we use? Mustard yeah. gas? Mustard gas, yeah. Fucking hell. The Germans did do it first.
0: Yeah, the Germans. And we did it. And then uh, Mussolini did it in Abyssinia. Yeah. We never used... Ah,
1: okay. No no chemical weapons were used in World War Two. No. Not by Hitler, not by... Not just by Harry Hitler. Truman used the atomic one. Yeah. Just, just the Americans going overboard like usual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... But no, I do subscribe to the
0: Reagan doctrine on foreign policy, which is you have to build up your military, you have to build up your defences precisely so you can make peace with the enemies. Oh, okay. Well, what about... You You always negotiate from a position of strength. That's what Reagan understood. Reagan yeah. built the military so effectively that by 1987, him and Mikhail Gorbachev at Reykjavik were talking about getting rid of the world's nuclear weapons. Yeah. When Nixon and, and Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter were brilliant presidents, they could only contain the rate of increase in weapons. When Reagan and Gorbachev were going to get rid of them all. Yeah, true. true. Because the military was strong. Now I'm in danger of sounding like Dick Cheney. <laughs>
1: right. Um, so so should we move on to the 17983 government? Then? Yeah. <clears throat> Let's move on to 1983. Uh, so so did the Tories winning a forty-three I, majority? Do you think that was a bit low, James? I think it was quite low for what I was ex- for what I would personally expect, considering the mess that Labour uh, left the Conservatives. Yeah. Now, I, as, you said, I, as, you, as you said, as you as said before or uh, in the past, uh, like a few minutes ago, that um, they only had the only lost a percentage or two in the actual yeah. vote. One percent of the vote. One percent of the vote. They actually lost the Labour Party. So. I mean, in that terms, in that terms, you wouldn't be surprised that it was only 43 majority for the Conservatives. It's more impressive the Conservatives' turnaround from what they had to what they got. That is, um, that, that, that itself, the only gains, was it about 50-odd seats, wasn't it, something like that? Uh, 70. 70. So, so, I mean, that then itself, you look at that compared 70. to on its own. No, sorry, 52. 52.
0: <clears throat> yeah because it was because yeah. the tories got i think it was 277 in 74 wait three hundred one two nine eight feb 74 three yeah it was 52 that's right because it went from 277 to 339 yeah
1: um oh yeah so so, so basically so basically when it comes to the 1979 election oh she gained 62 seats Margaret she gained 62. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, So, with those 62 seats, she That's gained... Right. She, yeah, she also gained 8% of the vote, taking lots away from the Liberals. Uh, mm-hmm. Because many people blame the Liberals' pact for the... um the, James I mean, That government. was horrendous. To now, when liberals. it comes to... Okay,
0: the Liberal vote collapsed, partly because Jeremy Thorpe's uh, arrest. Jeremy Thorpe, because of the former leader of the Liberal yeah. Party, got Liberals to vote to nearly 18% of the vote partly because David Steele were from the Lib Lab Pact that's it I mean yeah. it's a bit unfair to the Liberals actually
1: well it's easy to blame the Liberals
0: though that's what the left ought to be blamed yeah, um, no not those Liberals they were actually quite good Nick Clegg's Lib Dems we can blame them forever about everything but no no no
1: well I think I think majority I think I think if you have to look at it genuinely there's gains of the Conservatives were mainly because of the loss of Labour. It wasn't because mm-hmm. Conservatives. I don't think won that election. Labour lost it. Yeah, that's what I think happened. Yeah, and that and that as a result gave just just gave enough in each seat for the Conservatives to swing the vote so they could get about uh, so they could get an extra sixty-two seats and get were the 43 not, majority. I always say,
0: James, were it not for the winter discontent, if Jim had gone to the country in October seventy-eight, we'd have won. Yep. So. I mean, that's a proof Labour lost it, because if they gone to the country in October 78, Labour would have won the election, so it can't have been adoration of Conservative policy. It was more of anything could be better than this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree But let's talk that.
0: about the Cabinet, shall we? Is the Cabinet next? Yeah, was the Cabinet intriguing, do you think? Because except for Keith Joseph, Sir Geoffrey Howe, Norman Tebbit. Actually, I don't, I don't even know. No, Tebbit wasn't in the first cabinet. Because Tebbit came 81. Was he not? I thought he was not the first. Was he not as a junior minister or something like that? I, he could have been. Uh, he might have been a junior minister, because I know him and Law, Lawson was a junior minister in 79. But uh, no, no, Tebbit, okay. Tebbit came 81 because Jim Pryor was shifted from employment to Northern Ireland, and Norman Tebbit was put in, in, in employment. And Cecil Parkinson was brought in as well. So, shit. So, apart from Sir Geoffrey Howe, Keith Joseph, and John Not, the rest of the cabinet were Keynesians. Yeah. So, what do you make of that, then? The fact that, with the exception to her three ministers, one of them was Chancellor, Sir Geoffrey Howe, one of them was Secretary of State of Industry, that's Keith Joseph, and John Nott, that Margaret Thatcher had in her cabinet... The wets, as she called them. Yeah. I call them good sound men.
1: Yeah, I mean I call them good sound. Well, I mean the Conservatives, so obviously they do have some errors. But
0: Jim um, Quentin
1: Hilsham, you know, Lord Soames, fine men of intellect. Well when, when when it comes to when it comes to Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, and you'll see this throughout the entirety of the thing, and it's ultimately her demise in the end, is that she kept her enemies very close to her. Mm. So and that—that's that, what brought it. That's what brought it down in the end. When we come to that. No, but on the contrary, they, don't they just, no, don't she kept bringing enemies closer, James?
0: I think she did. She definitely did. I mm. think not like I the first he... cabinet. What would you say, honestly? The cabinet of 1990 was the sensible as 1979. Sorry. Was the cabinet of 1990, so Thatcher's last year in power, was that yeah. cabinet as sensible as 1979? No. No.
1: No. But that's because... Apart that from Peter Walker over... Douglas
0: Heard, who was
1: sensible, and Ken Clark, who was sensible in... in that cabinet. Well, one, one reason for the mix of politicians in 1979 may have be been Factor's desire to maintain unity within the party mm. and Correct. broaden its appeal to a wider range, uh, a, a wide range of voters. And that mm. by... Because she didn't want to end consensus politics straight away.
0: She wanted no, to away.
1: gradually phase it out. So by including more right-wing and more centrist politicians in the cabinet, well, obviously much more centrist than the right-wing, um, yeah. she may have been able to balance competing interests and avoid all, all alienating certain areas of the party. And that, and that was a good plan from her. However, what I would say, as Thatcher's premiership progressed, she became increasingly associated with more right-wing policies and more confrontational style of politics, and this led to a high number of resignations of a cabinet, including mm-hmm. Jeffrey Howe, N- Nigel Lawson, who felt that their policies had become too extreme. And I think I think mm-hmm. that's what happened was because she in the, because she gradually allowed more and more right wing people into her cabinet and gradually became more and more extreme along the way. That led to major resignations and arguably Howe resigning, which basically doomed it. Doomed well, Lawson. Well, Nigel Lawson resigned
0: because Mrs Thatcher wouldn't sack Alan Walters because Walters was her advisor who was telling Margaret Thatcher not to join the European Exchange Rate Mechanism whilst basically taking the piss out of Lawson to anyone who'd listened to him. And Lawson, Nigel Lawson resigned in 1989 over that after being Chancellor for five, for six years. And yeah. so Geoffrey Howe resigned because, of course, Jeffrey Howe was her first Chancellor. Yeah. Then he was made Foreign Secretary then he was demoted after six, he was Chancellor from 79 to 83, then he was Foreign Secretary from 83 to 89, then made uh, Leader of the House of Commons and Deputy Prime Minister, and he resigned because Margaret Thatcher in the House of Commons said, "On the Chairman of the President of the Commission, Mr Delors, said at press conference the other day that he wanted the European Parliament to be the effective legislative body, he wanted the Council of Ministers to be the Senate, and he wanted something, oh, I forgot what the last part was, um, this was her no, no, no speech.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: What, well, the Council of Ministers to be the Senate and the Democratic body of... Ele- and the Oh, yeah, the, the Council of Ministers to be Senate and for, the, and for a new federal currency. No, no, no. She was rejecting federal Europeanism, even though she had done more than anyone to bring it about. Yeah. Which everyone forgets, right? Who signed... Who championed the single European act... Margaret Thatcher, and what did that do? It created the single market, yeah. allowing goods, services, and people to move between Europe. Yeah, so how that was... has that been written out of history? That, that, <laughs> because the Europe that's win the window you're a skeptic, so they just forget
1: that part. <laughs> so, was the uh, would you say, would you say the massive increase in unemployment? From Mm. 1.5 million to 3.4 million. And the fact it was the number one issue for 13 out of the 18 years Mm. of Tory rule. Was that a key issue with the Tory government? Oh, yeah.
0: Unemployment, which... Okay, let's put this in... As Joe Biden would say, let's take a look at the facts. Unemployment in the Harold Wilson 6470 government averaged 700,000, right? It went to low at 565,000, and it reached a higher 800,000, okay? No, sorry, they, they averaged 650,000, sorry. Then Heath comes in, and unemployment in... Uh, I think I'm to say mid-72 reaches 1 million. And the House of Commons gets so angry that Parliament is suspended. Yeah. The day sitting gets suspended Because the Prime Minister's questions happens and Heath isn't allowed to speak because Labour MPs, actually quite a few Tory MPs, are yelling and heckling him. Because of the rage and disgust at unemployment going to one million. Because remember, from the days of Attlee to the days of Churchill and Eden and Macmillan and Hume and Wilson, it was the core policy. Government maintains high rates of employment and never causes unemployment. Yeah. And that's the core doctrine of Keynes Keynesianism. Yeah. The government creates jobs. So unemployment reached a million. Then, of course, he does a U-turn and does wage and price controls. Unemployment goes below a million. Then, so he leaves about 800,000 unemployed. Jim Callahan and Howard Wilson double unemployment to 1.6 million. Yeah. Which nobody ever talks about because... Labour's intentions are full employment, so why can we criticize them? Which is fair. Maggie Thatcher inherits one and a half million unemployed in 1979, and from January May 1979 to January 1982, unemployment reaches 3,073,742. Yeah. Unemployment, the increases in unemployment was the biggest issue in 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, then it comes down to 88, 89, 90, 90, and then it's issue in 91, 92, 93, and 94 of the Tory years. And the Tory party, for about, for most of that period, I'd say Margaret Thatcher had an ambivalent indifference to unemployment. Yeah. You know, famously, David Owen, when asked about would you join a coalition with Mrs. Thatcher or Mr. Kinnock, he says, but there's no question policies would have to change. Mrs. Thatcher would not be allowed to go on with her present indifference to unemployment. She'd have to grapple with unemployment in a very bold and imaginative way. Uh, Neil Kinnock wouldn't be allowed to go on pursuing these mad foreign policy, anti-American foreign policies of kicking America out of NATO bases and disarming you naturally that a lot of the economic madness has taken over the Labour Party. And yeah. I think her indifference to unemployment and Nigel Lawson famously saying the trouble is we have an overmanned economy, we've got to slim it down. Those are human beings you're talking about, you dick. <laughs> they're humans. They're not they're not numbers on a spreadsheet, they're people with families and lives. Yeah. You can't just sack them because they're surplus to requirements. They're people. Yeah, absolutely. You, you might notice my free market capitalist believe somehow do die down when it comes to Unemployment
1: Yes, yes, you're so, a very people person Aren't you
0: Doug? I have a very hard rage against unemployment I believe unemployment is Any government that believes in mass unemployment Anyone who believes in mass unemployment There's a special place in hell for you Yeah, absolutely It's with Pol Pot and Mussolini And Satan
1: It's in the 8th oh, circle
0: The 8th circle of hell, you'll go to there you'll lay there because I do believe, and I think this is the great the failure of the Thatcher years was the failure to grapple with unemployment. I yeah. think if Willie Whitelaw was leader, or if Jim Pryor was leader, or even Ken Clark was the leader, you would have seen, or Peter Walker, you would have seen a much more imaginative unemployment policy. And this, in a way, this winds up like the Labour Party is, where were we when this was happening? <laughs> We had the boldest opportunity to stick it to the Tories because they just put a million and a half people out of work in two years, and we were talking about the deputy leadership, the electoral college, mandatory reselection, and it's just what are you doing? We unemployment has been a Labour Party issue since the day we were created. We have got the chance to smack the Tories over the head. Um, are you sabotaging yourself deliberately? <laughs> so yeah, unemployment was a yeah, huge exactly. issue. I but... mean, famous. It was. It was always the one issue because people are concerned. You know, if one in ten people of the economy don't have a job in one of the richest nations on the earth, that is something to be legitimately terrified about.
1: Yeah, true.
0: Um, but let's go further. This is quite an interesting, so we've got 40 minutes in, <laughs> Shit. Yeah. and we are not even done the first Tory term yet.
1: Yeah, so... yeah. So, so what um, is it, what... did
0: the oh, contribute to the Tory unpopularity then? The fact that we were getting rid of most of our manufacturing economy and replacing it with services, do you think this I was think desirable, doing... undesirable... Did, was it necessarily part of the economy? with Thatcher and Law and Lawson correct? Or do you think this contributed to the mass unemployment?
1: Well, yeah, I think deindustrialisation was certainly a major factor in the mm. massive increase in unemployment um, yeah. and in the UK. But it wasn't it wasn't the only cause, obviously there were other significant factors. But deindustrialisation is basically, for people who don't know, is a process of a decline in the manufacturing sector, which was a significant source of employment. And basically, manufacturer would sell them all off to private companies who would then cut jobs or she would just completely ban them all or sell them off to foreign nations like North Sea Oil. But, I, um, but as a result, many manufacturing industries in the UK became less competitive and less profitable leading to closures and job losses. I mean, this decline in the manufacturing sector was particularly acute in certain uh, regions such as the north of England where heavy industry had become a major employer. Um, however, it's also... Do you know in
0: 1984? Do you know what youth unemployment was in Liverpool? 100%. Very close, 90 <laughs>
1: 90%. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Yes. Know, keep going. But it's also important to note that although deindustrialization was important factor, there were other important economic policies that played a role in the rise of unemployment. Um, the government's focus on controlling inflation, reducing public spending, led to cuts in public sector jobs and the privatization yeah, no, of the state owned in oh, industries. Also. Hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me. I don't think the control of inflation
0: contributes to unemployment. I think the control of inflation via the hiking of interest rates led to unemployment.
1: Because yeah, yeah, so many place, businesses yeah.
0: had so many loans, and if your interest yeah. rate on in that loan had gone from 8 to 10 to 15, you know, That's what I'm saying, yeah, that, yeah. I, I don't think it was. A, I don't. You have to remember, James. The the what everyone says Thatcher did austerity first. That isn't true, okay? Public spending rose in cash figures every single year Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. It actually more often than not rose by inflation. Ooh, this is why right, no, what. Gideon Osborne, the Sovereign is George Osborne, the the best councillor to cut spending in cash figures. Yeah, in cash figures. You're not talking about labour In cash figures, which is terrifying. You never cut spending for cash figures, you cut the rate of increase in spending. What factually the cause of unemployment was the hiking of the interest rates, as well as sticking a middle finger up to anyone that made anything in this country that wasn't financial services. Well, manufacturers do cut public spending up to a point. I mean, public spending still rose every year. Yeah, but it didn't. It didn't rise. She on the cut the share amount. of public expenditure from fifty-two percent to forty-six percent of GDP. But public spending, as we know it, rose every single year.
1: Yeah, but obviously, obviously, but if it's not cut, if it's not raised by this right amount, there's no point in raising it in the first place. It'd be no, it be the same. you raise it by
0: prices, look, public expenditure is measured in three figures: cash figures, price indexation, and, and percentage of GDP. Public spending, except for George Osborne, has always risen in cash figures. Public spending, except for George Osborne and uh, Philip Hammond to a lesser extent, always rose in line with price increases. But it's true on the Tory government, it tends to decline into GDP. That's because growth sometimes outstrips the rate of price increase. Yeah. I mean, I'll stick it to Thatcher on unemployment, but on public spending, like the NHS, spending on her under her tripled. Mm-hmm. From 7 mm-hmm. billion to 24 billion. True, true. Same with the schools. It tripled under Thatcher. The trouble was, she didn't know how to spend the money correctly because she didn't believe in the services.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about the yeah. tax. Let's talk about taxation. Okay, so were what, what the cuts in taxes from the top rate of 83 to 60% the basic rate from 33 to 30% a sound idea? Yep. Yeah. Why? Oh,
0: because... An 83% top rate of income tax is not competitive. Yeah, yeah. You have to. I've always said no government should tax above 40%. Ideally, i like a top rate of 35, but that's unpractical. A basic rate of 33 with a low rate of 25 is absurd. 33 is too high. Bring it down. Oh, interestingly, like the Thatcher tax policy was, it was 33 and 79, and it was 30, sorry, it's 30, 30, 33 to 30 and 79. Then it was 30 to 29 in 1984. Then it went from 29 to 27 in 1987. Then it went from 27 to 25 in 1988. But then, for the next seven years, the Tory party didn't cut the basic rate of tax once. Yeah. Not till 95 did it go down to 24, then 23. And then Gordon cut it to 22 and then down to 20. Yeah, but, that's true, that's true. You know, 33 is too high of a rate. And it's for 83, of course, it went from 83 to 60, and then nine years later, nineteen eighty-eight, it went from sixty to forty. Yeah. Which is a reasonable rate. And by the way, from nineteen eighty-eight to two thousand and nine, there was a top rate of only forty percent. For twelve yeah. of the thirteen years of the last Labour government, the top rate was forty percent. That's true, that's true. Let's just that I'd leave that there for anyone who just feels otherwise. For 12 of the 13 years of Tony and Gordon, the top rate of tax was 40%. And didn't we have enough money for public spending? Yes, we did. Yeah. But yeah, the Thatcher tax policy was to shift taxation onto uh, un- indirect taxes rather than direct. So what that means was... They wanted to do windfall taxes, raise VAT, hike the capital gains tax, but not raise income tax on national insurance.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So oh we
0: talked about that with transformation. Okay. Divos the oil bench, you think the biggest tragedy of the Dachgy is the fact we had a hundred billion pounds in revenue every year and we pissed it up the wall.
1: Oh, yeah. We I, did I love your We spent yeah.
0: a hundred, We spent Nazi oil money, bankrolling the negative effects of Thatcherism.
1: Yeah. Well, I I would say I would say that the Nazi oil was one of the silliest ideas of any government in the history, and the in recent memory. I would say in mine is that from, uh, you know this. Iraq and all of that. Um,
0: but you have, Do you know who's the uh, Secretary domestic- State for Energy that discovered and harnessed it?
1: What? Tony Bennett. Who was that? Was it? Mm-hmm. But I think I think the issue of North Sea oil and gas production was a was a significant one during the Factor factory administration because it was considerably it was basically it was considered a tragedy. In the matter of we had we've lost such so much guaranteed money. On w- on one hand, it's true that Thatcher, I mean Thatcher, did oversee a significant increase in North Sea oil and gas production during the, her time in office. But, but then she wasted just, it. wasted it. Then she just wasted it. Um, instead, the Factor government used the revenues from North Sea oil and gas to fund tax cuts, and and mm. basically. In, and factory and factorism policies and factory policies, not actually funding it in areas where people where job losses came out for the fact that she thought of all the North Sea
0: It's Do you know what I funny is that when the fifty one sixty four Tory government was there, in fifty two there was a massive loosening of the trade restrictions. So the government got a massive increase in revenue, right? And we wasted that we wasted the revenue in fifty two when we could have rebuilt something built big. In 1978, Michael Foote, who was on the left... I mean, everyone knows Michael Foote's on the left of the Labour Party. Michael Foote was big on the Callaghan government for one reason. He said, we've got to stay in power when the oil money comes in. Yeah. Because they had envisioned not only the National Care Service, but a National Education Service, a rebuilding of British industry. You would have seen... That's why I didn't think the Callaghan government was so transformative... Is because the oil money, which would have been huge, 100 billion a year, would have been spent to better use. Yeah. Like Attlee would have done if the trade standards are losing 52.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's a great tragedy. But no, Margaret Thatcher said, no, we must spend it on tax cuts for the rich and subsidising unemployment because they're too fucking useless to put these people back
1: to work. Yeah. So, so were the riots in nineteen eighty one in Liverpool, uh, Moss Side, etc. A huge crisis. Mm. And was Michael Hazeltine a rebuilding of Liverpool uh, in his rebuilding of Liverpool an effective example of one of nation of one of the nation's great Toryisms?
0: Mm. Do you know when Michael Hazeltine, when he was a minister of state for the environment, which was part of the local government brief? When he looked at rebuilding the inner cities and he did the white paper, which is, of course, the white paper is the policy document that a cabinet minister submits to the cabinet to get verified in order to take it to the House, House of Commons as a bill, right? Do you know what the white yeah. paper was called?
1: No. Yeah.
0: It took a riot. What was it called? It took a riot.
1: But adapted the white paper's then? Yeah. Wow.
0: Because the, the, the white paper was explaining how it took a riot in Toxteth, in Moss Side, in Liverpool, for us to actually understand the depth of social problems there are in unemployment, in poverty, in, in poor education, and yeah. how we must fix these problems. Yeah. And you have to remember, you know, this hadn't happened since the 30s. Yeah. You know, This was something most people at the time didn't understand. Riots in Britain, this was unheard of. But it did. And, you know, Heseltine, to his eternal credit, got the Britain's biggest, six biggest businesses to come on a bus with him whilst he would direct them through the city of Liverpool and explain all the problems in Liverpool. He took them to the Adelphi Hotel and they were sitting there and all their heads were looking down a bit. A Michael Heseltine says, I don't want your money. And six smiling heads look up Heseltine again. And he goes, all I want is you to send your best young business person to the department and we can figure something out for Liverpool. And they did. And Heseltine rebuilt Liverpool yep. on an industrial scale. And I genuinely believe that for about eight months... Michael Heseltine made himself the Minister of Liverpool for about a year and a bit. He became the Minister of Liverpool. Not officially, unofficially. And he... I mean, there's a reason why Heseltine and Ken Clark would have been the best, would have been the leaders we in the Labour Party are scared of most. Because they have an understanding of winning Labour voters and the working classes better than anyone in the country. You know, he built Tory morale on Merseyside as big as anyone could build morale on Merseyside for a Tory at a time when there were no Tory councillors in Liverpool. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And thankfully,
0: there's still no Tories in Liverpool. If you're a Tory in mm-hmm. Liverpool, you're seen a part of a diseased species, and rightly so.
1: <laughs>
0: you're a Tory, fuck off. <laughs> I mean, when I think about no Tory free zones, I always think of that area in Corporate where if you were not Labour, were deemed to need psychiatric assistance. Yeah. But no, I think my, I think what Michael Hazeltine did for Liverpool was by far his finest hour, yes. And incidentally incidentally, in nineteen eighty five when the Camel-Laird-Swan's dispute happened, which was, of course, two uh, frigates, of military frigates, of, 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 of equipment. And Michael Heseltine was now the Secretary of State for Defence, and Norman Tebbitt was the Employment Secretary. And uh, Michael and Norman had instructed Camel-Laird, which is the Liverpool Company, to bid for only one of the frigates, and Swan could bid, bid for two frigates. And yeah. Heseltine was prepared to resign over that, And Thatcher overturned the decision so Camel Laird could have the contract in Liverpool. But what happened six months later? Westland Helicopters Limited. More on Westland Helicopters Limited later.
1: Right, okay. This might be a
0: long episode but no one can say they're not getting their money's worth.
1: Yeah, true. Absolutely. Um, This is good if you want to
0: revise, come with Dowd and James and we'll give you all the British history you need.
1: (laughs) James, you you know we were talking
0: about the other day about me becoming a lecturer. Yeah. I would be good at it.
1: You would be, you would be.
0: I sit down and say, right, I'm better than you, I know more than you, now let me prove it.
1: Yeah. After saying last week,
0: I'm a self-arrogant, righteous, pompous prick. I am now trying to behave like one. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> All right. How did you go on, James? How was it by end of 81, the polls were like this? Tories, 23%. Labour, 24%. SDP, Liberal Alliance, 155 and a half. <laughs> well, how think... was Mrs Thatcher Throughout 1981 Polling in third place For the
1: Tories Well I think it comes down to four things I think mm. So you have economic policies You yeah. have unrest within the party Public yeah. sector strikes And riots yeah. When it comes down yeah. to economic policies the, the Conservative government's economic policies Which intended which included cuts to public spending And the focus on monetarist policies were seen as harsh and unpopular by many people. The, uh, the policies were intended to tackle inflation and reduce government debt, but also led to high levels of unemployment and social inequality, which eroded the support for the government. Uh, whether that's true or not, people can debate, but that's what people saw. It's not. As at the time. Look, public
0: spending in 1975 was 60% of GDP. In 1979, it was 54% of GDP. I cannot not see the argument for bringing it down to 46, 45. By the way, throughout the 2010s, public spending was 38% on average of GDP. Yeah. Right? Throughout Tony and Gordon's years, it, aver- it peaked at 46, whereas most of the time at about 39 to 41% of GDP. Everybody in that cabinet, in the Labour cabinet, on the right, so Reg Prentice, Harold Lever, Dennis Healy were saying, let's bring spending down as a percentage of our GDP. Yeah. It wasn't an uncommon argument. The trouble was, like Tories they are, they weren't bringing spending down on waste, they were just sticking it to the poor. Yeah. But the but the, the reduction of inflation, I'd argue, is a creditable achievement. You know, getting inflation from 13.3 to four percent in three and a half years is not to be sneezed at. No, true. The trouble is the way they did it was too harsh. But still, achievement
1: nevertheless. Anyway, keep going. Um right yeah, so with unrest within the party, there was yep. also there was also unrest within the Conservative Party at the time, particularly of the government's handling of the economy. Some MPs and party members were unhappy with the direction of the government's policy and as a result, the division reflected in the polls. Um, The public sector strikes as well. In 1981, there was a number of strikes uh, by public sector workers, including uh, nurses, teachers, civil servants, steel workers, and these strikes disrupted public services and led to widespread public anger and frustration. Mm -hmm. I also think the the most important one, as as we mentioned earlier, was riots where mm. everybody thought riots in Britain was practically unthinkable. There were a number yeah. of riots in in the, city, uh, in the UK in 1981, which is seen as a symptom of a wider social change and wider social and economic problems. The government response to these riots was criticised. Was do fuck heavy-handed all. And it, yeah, it was, well, they were being heavy-handed and they were just basically ineffective. It was literally Thatcher...
0: Blaming the riot on the people in Liverpool and saying their morals weren't strong enough, there were too many many children created out of wedlock and litter wasn't being picked up. Litter? Sorry, love. 90% of the young people are without a job and you're focusing on fucking litter. Yeah. It it was the greatest little humbug I've ever heard in my life. 90% of young people in Liverpool didn't have a job and you're focusing on litter, and the roads aren't clean, and they shouldn't be rioting. What have you? What did Dr- And I don't condone rioting because I believe in law and order, very passionately. Yeah. But what did Dr. King say? Violence is a reflection of the voices of the unheard. And who do more people like, Dr. Martin Luther King or Margaret Thatcher?
1: Oh, I, th- I think it might be Dr. King.
0: I think it might be Dr. King on his good day. Now, of course it's Dr. King, but on the point of the <laughs> Tory party, it's quite interesting about Thatcher was because the Tory party were divided, right? You had the, the, the moderates, the James Pryors, the the, the Quentin Haleshams, the, the Lord Soameses, uh, Peter Walker, and all these, the moderates in the Tory cabinet, who yeah. really detested Thatcherism. Yeah. You know? Reggie Maudling, he was in the cabinet. I mean, Reggie Maudling famously said the trouble is with this party, is there is a section of us who have come to accept the facts of life, and there are others that believe in Selden Park conservatism. Now, Selden Park Torism was this meeting at in 1969 in Selsden Park where they wanted to come up with new right wing policies. And the main do you remember know the main right wing policy was, James? What? brace yourself, to make people pay one-fifth of the cost of hospital treatments. <laughs> Ian McLeod famously said, if we pursue this policy, we will not win a general election for the rest of our life. So that policy <laughs> was written out. Um, the part conservatism was basically called for very right-wing Toryism. And so yeah, they had the moderates who were furious. But there's one reason, one reason alone, why Margaret Thatcher stayed in power in that 81 period. because It was one, two words, Willie Whitelaw. Willie Whitelaw was Margaret Thatcher's Deputy Prime Minister and so wet he was, he was known by me as Mr Soaked. Yeah. <laughs> Willie Whitelaw is so far left on the Tory party, he might as well be on the right of the Labour Party. Yeah, true. Willie White Law is so left-wing in the Tory party, the difference between him and Dennis Healy was nothing. So he was a natural lefty in the Tory party. But when he, when Margaret Thatcher was made the leader, he basically got rid of his judgement, publicly at least, to defend Thatcher.
1: Yeah.
0: And it paid off because when Margaret Thatcher, one an example, introduced the poll tax in 1981 she gave it to Whitelaw and said, Willie, take a look at this. And Law said, don't touch it. It's going to be politically dangerous. Don't do it. And she didn't. And Whitelaw, I'd argue, was probably the only minister in Thatcher's government that if she's, if he said don't, she wouldn't. And that was because of the loyalty that was there in, in, in Whitelaw to Thatcher. Now, I, I, I reference to Willie Whitelaw because Law was able to keep the wets in the government. Yeah. If he had Um, turned against her, I do not doubt for a second Margaret Thatcher would have been finished. Famously, um, the Tory party conference in 80? Was it 80? It was either 80 or 81. I think it was 80. uh, Simon Jenkins of The Guardian, then later of The Times newspaper, uh, bet with his colleague a case of champagne that Margaret Thatcher will not be gone by Christmas. This was in September 1980. And um, one of his colleagues said to him, well, you just lost yourself a case of champagne because of course she will be gone by Christmas.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, no, sorry, September 81. So she didn't. And that was because she had, I'd say at that time, about four very strong men, right? Willie Whitelaw, Sir Keith Joseph, Sir Geoffrey Howe, Norman Tebbett. Yeah, but of course, Thatcher in after. uh, Okay, let me explain. So after the Liverpool riots, there was the cabinet of eighty one, the summer of eighty one, the cabinet where they basically cabinet had a riot, not literally but proverbially. So Geoffrey Howe wanted a second, another round of spending cuts. This was voted down by every minister in the cabinet except Thatcher and Howe. yeah just think about that. Keith even Sir Keith Joseph thought the ta- the cuts were too heavy. And then famously John Knott who was an ardent monetarist in the Thatcher government, a very devout monetarist. even he said he thought the treasury figures were a nonsense and that when Britain is burning in flames, you do not keep doing the reason why people are rioting. Yeah, true. So Thatcher goes away for the summer and decides to start sack the Wets. So Lord Soames is gone, Quentin Hill, Ian Gilmore is gone, you know, Jim Pryor is sent to Northern Ireland. I mean, famously, Jim Pryor, who was very much pro trade union lefty in the Tory party, him and Thatcher always got along because Thatcher said privately, I like Jim. I like the way he'll always argue to my face when others will just mutter behind my back. Um but yeah, so yeah, she got rid of the, most of the wets, not all, because you know, Francis Pym was still there, Peter Cavington yeah. was still there, Willie Whitelaw was still the second most powerful man in the country. So she got rid of all the wets. But the hardcore wets, the Ian Gilmores of this world, they were gone. And as for public yes. sector strikes, the steel was the biggest. That went on for nine months. And the Steel Union got double what they asked for when the strike ended.
1: Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I mean, mean, there's not much you can add to that, is there? No.
0: We might have to take this on, actually, for longer, James. (laughs) Do you have to go by four?
1: No, 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 3.30, uh, 3. So, all right. So
0: we got this. Got fifty minutes then.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. We might have to do a part two of this.
1: <laughs> well, we could do the. Should we do like up to the eighty-three eighty-seven pound and then do, uh, hmm. eighty-seven ninety-two and ninety-two ninety-seven? That could be a good idea. How's it going so far, by the way? Good.
0: Good. All right. Are we informing the people? I think we are. If we're not informing the people, then we must have lost our mojo, because informing people is what we do when we, when I'm not swearing my mouth off.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's been uh,
0: right, let's keep going then.
1: So Drift in Labour. Oh yeah. So what's the drift in the left and the Labour Party? An act of insanity. As just as factors policies were putting the Tories into a very unpopular position, Labour drifted to the left, which didn't really help them.
0: By the way I've worded the question, James, what do you think my answer is? Yes. (laughs) Of course it was insanity. It was insanity of the highest order. The Labour Party, just as Margaret Thatcher was sticking it to the poor, sticking it to the disabled, sticking it to the poor, to welfare, to welfare, to the NHS, to schools, we were talking about how to elect the leader how to elect the deputy leader mandatory reselection unilateral nuclear disarmament and nationalization of britain's 100 biggest companies
1: yeah I mean, it, it was it was just a, it, was it, it was insanity yeah
0: it was it was absolute insanity. The Tory party were kicking themselves in the shreds, and we were talking about nationalising Britain's 100 biggest companies. Why? <laughs> What's the demand? People want to know about unemployment, about the health service, about the welfare state. They do you not want Marx and Spencer's to become nationalised? Yeah. But no, we were committed to that. We were committed to getting rid of nuclear weapons on our own. We were committed to leaving the European economic community without a referendum. We were committed to leaving NATO. We were committed to all sorts of balmy idiot ideas that Gerald Kaufman, brilliantly was our shadow home secretary, said, called it the longest suicide note in history. Look, I adore Michael Foot. I love, like Dennis Healy a lot. I la- adore Tony Benn. you cannot look at that manifesto which I have read in detail I have read every word of the 83 and 87 manifesto and not say the 83 manifesto was batshit yeah I generally think if the Labour Party had stayed on a social democratic pro-NATO pro-internationalist foreign policy with a Keynesian domestic policy, similar to Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan, the SDP would not have happened. If the SDP did not happen, Labour would have beaten Mike, would have beaten Margaret Thatcher in 83.
1: Yeah,
0: true. And let me, put it, let me put it in one simple terms. If Dennis Healy had got 10 more votes, than, had beaten Michael Foote and won 10 more votes and beaten Michael Foote in 1980, Dennis Healy would have been Prime Minister. In 83. Yeah, absolutely. We'd have had one term of Thatcherism. I do not think without Healy, you would not have had the SDP, you would not have had the leftward drifting the lame party, you would not have had the 1981 deputy leadership contest, and we would have had a clear policy on the Falcons. You'd have, had, And then, because we'd have captured the centre ground and the left, the Tories would be forcing to go and talk to the right-wing Burks. Yeah. You can see I'm a bit passionate about this. Yes, ju- just a tad, just a tad, just a tad bit of passion and anger, because we caused that. We condemned the country to eighteen years of a right-wing, hate-filled government. Yeah. But do you, do you, do you like I do, James, have sympathy for the SDP in terms of their ideas? Like, if you look at the 83 manifestos, right, so eight, like, OK, let me make it's clear. If you do not know, if anyone's listening to this podcast as a new listener, James and I have been members of the Labour Party since we were 14 years of age. So we are Labour to the core of our thinking. But wouldn't the 83 SDP Liberal Manifesto be more aligned to our way of thinking and many people's thinking than 83 Tory or 83 Labour?
1: Well, I would say yes, and I think, and I think the reason for that is quite clearly shown in the polls at the time. We have to be, we doing miles better than anybody ever thought they could do, mm. and I mean that, and that, that's just the fact that they appealed to majority of people. They appealed yeah. to the, as Margaret Hodge would call, it, the wet the Tory party, and they appealed to somehow every majority of people in the Labour Party as well. They somehow yeah. managed to appeal to. It a great portion of the Conservatives and a great portion of oh, the Well, I'd say they appealed much more than the Wets. Remember, remember, the end of 1981,
0: James, the Tory party won 23%, Labour 24 SDP, Liberals, 15 and a half. So uh, we keep going. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I understand what you're saying here. Yeah, so it come it comes down to the A lot of Conservatives, it's... because what was the SDP positions? Full employment... Publicly funded yep. health service, welfare system, yep. but pro internationalist, pro NATO, pro nuclear weapons. It was the gate skill Labour Party that, in a time of right wing Toryism and left wing Labourism, you had a sensible voice. Well,
1: I think I think the reason it was so popular at the time was because mm. of was because of one factor. The SDP was bringing back consensus politics. Correct, and people liked the idea of consensus politics. That's why it was such a such a I mean, in the 1950s, you weren't really voting for Conservatives or Labour. You're voting for maybe a bit less effective welfare yeah. and spent a bit less tax, or a bit more effective welfare and a bit more tax. That's what you're voting yeah. for in 1960. As Ken the Clark said in 1960,
0: sensible the same in 1970. Yeah, as Ken Clark says Isn't brilliantly, so in the past it was sensible one nation Conservative government being replaced by sensible social democratic Labour governments, and you would get. I mean George Osborne. I was listening to Gideon, and Gideon says, "You know, I remember when I was the Shadow Chancellor, and the big debate at the time was should income tax be one percent higher or one percent lower, and how much should trust hospitals be outside of the NHS framework? And now it's shall we leave the EU or shall we become a communist state?" <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And it can. And it that was twenty nineteen. And it comes down to the fact of the matter is that in the 1980s, when the Labour were more left than they had been in a good 30, 40 years, and the Conservatives mm-hmm. more right wing in a good 30, 40 years, yeah. what it, it if, becomes the fact that. Well, actually,
0: um, I'd say that Conservative Party was the most right wing in 100 years.
1: Yeah, true, yeah. yeah.
0: Balfour, true word, yeah. Baldwin, Churchill, Eden Macmillan. Hume and Heath were not as right wing as Thatcher in the Labour Party, that 83 manifesto was further to the left than any Labour Party manifesto in the history of our party. Yeah, yeah. Attlee wasn't a socialist hero. He was a centre-left guy, you know, to rebuild the country after the world, with the welfare state and the NHS and schools. Harold Wilson wasn't a socialist. He was a social democrat. Jim Callaghan was a social democrat, Michael Foote is one of the most well-read, brilliant, lovely, brilliant, intelligent people, and a great man, and a great orator, and a great thinker, and the worst person to be Labour leader in 1980.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, when I think of Michael Foote, I always think of the Shirley Williams analysis on Michael Foote, which is, Michael Foote is one of the sweetest of men, a lovely man personally, a marvellous writer and an excellent journalist, and the very last person in the world you want to lead the Labour Party with, because he was a consensus man and he tried to relate to people, and there were some people you could not seek consensus with.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Healy knew how to deal with those people. He just walk in and scream, you're a bunch of bastards, up here, and walk off. <laughs> you, that, I mean, see every scene of do you know during the part you're in parliament in 76 voted through the IMF loan, right? Yeah. Do you know Dennis Healy was prowling up the lobby with his middle fingers in each side of his hand uh, at the side of his head, sticking up his middle fingers? And screaming, "Why am I in a party with a bunch of fucking communists?"
1: <laughs>
0: that was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, my friends.
1: But <laughs> well, yeah, it's it, like um, it
0: seventy six in the House of Commons. Um, this is during. This was actually two weeks before Jim Callaghan became the Prime Minister. Labour MPs were heckling at Healy, calling him a Stalinist bastard, uh, and, all, and and flicking the V sign at him. And Healy turns back and screams, "You fuckers, you're Italian or Chinese minds." <laughs> Hence, now can everyone see why Dennis Healy wasn't elected leader of the Labour Party? Yes,
1: yes, it, it... yeah. Because but he I'm kept not... bullying
0: the left of his party by making fun of them, even though I'd say his his politics is still miles to the left of Tony Blair. Yeah. People on the right the of the Labour Party at time. So the Roy Hattersleys, the Dennis Healy's, the Bill Rodgers, they are miles to the left of New Labour.
1: Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Well, I think... Well, when it comes to the... I'm FD... pulling my
0: weight today. This is unusual for the podcast. Normally, you're doing the heavy lifting for us.
1: Yeah, no, I know, I know. I think when it comes to the SDP, completely, it is. It has, it's got down to the fact that it was the it was the managing to unite, basically, labour and. James, are you parties. free this week? Um. Like after school, Wednesday? yeah. Wednesday Wednesday, Wednesday,
0: Wednesday, Tuesday. Yeah. Do you want to do a second episode of this, and then we can start on Sunday? The sixty-four seventy-nine government. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. All right, let's keep going then. We'll, we'll get up to 83 or 87. Um, and then I'll, on Tuesday or Wednesday, we'll do a second episode.
1: Okay, yeah, that's fine.
0: All right, keep going. I won't yeah, interrupt so... now, I promise. Or at least I'll try. Or, or at least I shall do it to my
1: best endeavours not to interrupt. <laughs> so the SDP bringing back uh, consensus politics, managing to unite L- the Labour Party. And the Conservative Party together, stuff that the Liberals failed to do in the past, stuff that the Lib Dems still fail to do now, which is the whole the whole reason of the Liberals if you actually look at it. Their their point was we are the best of Conservatives and the best of Labour. That's what the Lib Dems kind of market under now. And mm. the FDP...
0: oh, mm. I'd say in twenty ten, yes they did that, but two thousand and five. 2001, Charles Kennedy won by the left of Labour. Paddy Ashdown, maybe 92, 97, definitely not. I'd, I'd say 2010 and 2015, that whole will be the brains to Labour and the hearts to the Conservatives' appeal was definitely there. But I wouldn't say David Steele or... Paddy Ashton or Charlie Kennedy were trying to be centrists.
1: No, true, 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 yeah.
0: But well, I do agree, though, the SDP were yeah. definitely taking the best, the Tory foreign policies and Labour domestic policies and Tory fiscal policies and bringing it together.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. That, but I will definitely we agree do. with
1: that, yes. And, and as a result, the public thought, well, this is a great, great idea. Mm. And that's why the SDP... If they play, the issue is if they played their cards right, they could be, they could still be in power. I feel, I feel like the SDP could still be a thing if if they played and the their SDP, cards right. But... The S-
0: is there is one very simple reason the SDP didn't succeed. The Labour Party wouldn't die. Yeah. When the SDP launched, they took Rod Jenkins, David Owen, Shirley Williams. Bill Rogers, and it took 29 other Labour MPs with it. But Dennis Healy, Roy Hattersley, Gerald Kaufman, and others on the right, on the traditional, the Harold Leavers, the people on, traditionally on the right of the Labour Party, stayed in the Labour Party. Yeah. If they had joined the SDP, the Labour Party would have become a left wing block. Um, similar to the linker in Germany and the SDP would have become the natural force to rival the Conservatives but the Labour Party thankfully didn't die and ultimately and this is very important actually is when to- when Dennis Healy beat Tony Benn in the Deputy Leadership Contest in 1981 and he was Tony Benn 49.574 Dennis Healy of the vote. That's how close it was. That was the Labour Party by its fingertips clinging to reality and sanity. Yeah. Because if Dennis Healy had lost deputy leadership, I am genuinely 100% convinced the SDP would have taken off even further because I do not think the soft right would have stayed in the Labour Party. No, true, true. And because Dennis Healy stayed in the Labour Party, the Labour Party, by its fingertips, its fingernails, were clinging back onto reality and sanity, which meant it was possible for the Labour Party to be saved It took a very long time, I'd say about 15, 13 years, till the election of Tony Blair for the Labour Party to be saved, but it was saved because we made a conscious choice not to go to the militant left. Had we done so, the SDP, which remember, in 1983, it was Tories 42.4, Labour 27.4, SDP 25.9. Yeah, in terms of percentage share of vote, yeah, that's true. So it was close, but the Labour Party saved itself by keeping to reality and sanity. But now, I, I, think, I think a lot of people with brain cells have more sympathy with the 83 SDP manifesto than the 83 Labour manifesto. Yeah, I think if you ask Tony Blair or uh, others, you know, John Reed. Or Alan Milburn. And, and, and tell which one do you have more sympathy with? They'd say... 80. It's either like Roy Jenkins or Peter Shaw, or they say Roy Jenkins. Hell, I'd say Roy Jenkins. <laughs> Incidentally, do you know Margaret Thatcher was planning to make Roy Jenkins the Chancellor in 1979? Sorry? I know, this is an anecdote of history everyone forgot, and I didn't know this two weeks ago, was that Margaret Thatcher wanted to make Roy Jenkins the Chancellor. Really? Hmm. Because Roy Jenkins was one of the few chancellors in history to achieve budget surpluses. Sure. There you are. Anyway, keep going. Um,
1: so, to what
0: extent did Maybe, that, maybe just me all the other questions, I'll give the answers. Sorry, that's rude. <laughs>
1: So like, what is that the first do, time you've been rude in seven years, Dad? No. What What you do, Dad, is you say everything I'm going to say, and I'm left with, "Yeah,
0: I do not." No, 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 no. Actually, to be honest, you've watched the videos I
1: have, so you probably do have those anecdotes. Yeah, not, no, no, When it comes to the anecdotes part, yeah, but I'm talking about that actual.
0: Oh, you analysis. to say about it?
1: Yeah, the analysis. Yeah, you fine. the things oh, that I'm going to think. Anyway, Dad. So. To so what extent did the Falklands War allow the revival of Margaret Thatcher? Well, go on, you can answer it. Okay. Well, <laughs> the Falklands War in nineteen eighty two was basically a pivotal moment in the premiership of Margaret Thatcher, and I believe personally that it was it made the gave her a significant political revival. Mm-hmm. Um, before the Falklands War, Thatcher's government was facing significant criticism, as we've just talked about before, struggling the number of changes because of high levels of employment, social unrest, economic policies were being criticised. Um, the Conservative Party was also trailing in the opinion polls and fractured leadership was being questioned by some members of her own party. However, the Falklands War changed the political landscape, I think. Successful military operation to take the Falklands Islands from Argentina, from Argentina was Widely celebrated in the UK, and it comes back to this like old uh, and it uh, and it can and it helped obviously boost national pride and morale and etc. And it comes back to this old theory that people had. If you're a dictator, obviously, Margaret a dictator, if you're a dictator and you're losing popularity, the best thing to do start a war. Mm-hmm. People then start supporting the government without question when you're in a war, and that's what happened. The uh, Conservative Party were trailing before the war, and the opinion polls. Her of the leadership was being questioned by some members of her own party. However, the Falklands War changed it, and and factual strong leadership during the crisis with the sinking of the Belgrano, with the with the uh, putting troops in the force, with her strategic planning, with her with her asking telling the Americans to give them weapons, and as a result, the Americans think of as weapons. Thatcher's strong leadership was widely praised, and a popularity surged as a result. And when the troops came back, when the troops came out, Margaret Thatcher took actually for a small period of time had more popularity than the Queen when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, approval ratings. And mm-hmm. the Falklands War also had a significant impact on Conservative Party fortunes as well. The party yeah. supported uh, the party supported the opinion poll surge, and Thatcher's leadership was strengthened as a result. The war also helped. To consolidate support for the government and its policies, paved the way for. And I think personally, the victory in the Falklands War paid the Conservative Party's uh, victory in the 1983 election. I entirely agree. I entirely agree. And, entirely agree. and so, agree. remember this that
0: December 81, the Tories were at 23%. By June 82, they were at 48 48 percent yeah the vote the tory party the falcons war was a massive success for this reason first it revived britain standing on the international world people wanted to be seen with britain again you know we just won a war huge secondly she had the right enemy general Galtieri of argentina a right-wing fascist dictator is the right enemy to wipe the floor with Thirdly, we bundled on Falcons, i.e. we, the Labour Party. Yeah. We went from being emphatically support to emphatically opposed to being emphatically supportive again. Yeah, not good. Yeah, absolutely. Not a good idea. You You should always support your leader in wartime. Question some of the actions, by all means, but support them in principle in wartime. Thirdly, she consolidated her power because Francis Pym, who was the foreign secretary After Peter Carrington, who was the foreign secretary Resigned uh, Francis Pym Tried to get a deal a, P- a diplomatic deal with the Argentine Where Argentina would have partial sovereignty On Falklands Yeah, And Thatcher To her eternal credit Said to hell with this Win it back Yeah And that is the right course of action You don't do deals on your territory. You don't appease people. You beat them. Yeah. And she was right. Because, of course, had she lost the Falklands, she'd have had to resign. Yeah. But she won them. And she revived her standing and her personal popularity. And I think you're absolutely right, actually. I think without Falklands, there is no possible way the Conservative Party would have won the general election of 83 or wouldn't have got the floor wiped with them.
1: Yeah, the Falklands, yeah. It comes back to the old saying. It comes back to the old saying. If you're if you're struggling in approval rating, start a war. Yeah. yeah. Start it's, a war. I mean and famously,
0: Simon Jenkins of The Guardian met Jim Callahan during the Falklands War. And he said, you know, how do you think the war's going? And Callahan shaked his head and said, I if only I had a war. If only I had a war.
1: Yeah, exactly. What well, um, it, it saves you.
0: I mean, yeah. famously, when George H. W. Bush won the first Gulf War in ninety one, his approval rating went to ninety one percent.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, that's huge. The yeah, only absolutely. contradiction to that is, of course, every whilst George Bush was in the Iraq War. His popularity kept going down and downwards and downwards and downwards and yeah, downwards. I mean, his war was regal. Yeah, true. He started at 71% in 2003 and finished the presidency at 26. <laughs> but he's a wartime president. He's a wartime president, James.
1: Yeah, yeah. The war, yeah. Uh, well, well, I'm yeah,
0: a wartime president. Not... I'm a wartime president, says the man who did not even serve one day in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> George W. Bush in 2004 ran on the idea that John Kerry, a war hero, who'd saved four of his men, who'd, sa- who'd saved his equipment, who sa- escaped from, him, from him being killed in Vietnam, was a traitor to his country and George W. Bush in that same time said in the 167th parallel wing known as the fucking champagne wing that would have only been a only been required if Oklahoma was to invade Texas. Apparently, he was the great statesman
1: war hero. <laughs> well, you know, Oklahoma at that time was quite vicious.
0: Yeah, true. They they were with the the land. I mean, honestly, the South, Jesus Christ. I mean, his father was a war hero. George H. W. Bush was a legitimate war hero. Yeah. His plane was shot down, if you remember. He he got saved by his crew and he, he was a war hero. W wasn't a war hero. But had rebuilt her popularity on Falklands, yes, and won 83 on the base. I mean, it's, 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 I don't know about 83 was that the last four days of advertising in the 1983 general election for the Conservative Party were cancelled. Really? Why was that? Because Tim Bell, who was then the director of party advertising, decided they were so far ahead they didn't need the they didn't need the advertising.
1: <laughs> so they could just save the money. Yeah. <laughs> but um so so well talk talking about the election though. Was the 1983 yeah. election a vote for factorism or was it a vote against Labour's drift to the left? Oh, against Labour's drift to the left.
0: There mm. so, it was a vote for Thatcher in Falklands. I mean, a strong yep. leader, I'll give her that. But the manifesto we proposed was batshit. Yeah. Nationalise 100 Britain's biggest, biggest companies. Crazy idea. Disarming, natural, disarming our nuclear weapons on our own. Crazy idea. Leaving the EEC without a referendum. Batshit. The idea you're going to nationalise all the industries the Tories privatised without raising taxes. Absurd. Raising top rate of tax back to 98%. Crazy.
1: Yeah. Need Excellent. I go on. But you have to you, you, have, you have to take it had some of it, there was a significant endorsement of factorism as well, do you understand? And the Conservative no, Party policies Because so. like I said, well, John Redwood said, remember, we won the election
0: on a blank check. That 83 manifesto Did not talk about the privatisation of water, the privatisation of gas, the privatisation of BT. He didn't talk about taking the top rate down to 40. He didn't talk about privatising council houses. Actually, no, actually, it might have done about council houses. I'm not sure. He didn't talk about um, a lot of the second term that's right policies weren't in there. There was something about massive education reform that led to GCSEs. No, true, true, true. They won it on a massive black check. I genuinely believe it was because of Falklands and it was, Britain was strong yeah, and Britain obviously. was proud again and the Labour Party were yelling about disarming our weapons on our own. Another batshit idea. Yeah, I mean yeah,
1: yelling about disarming the weapons about two months after those invasion I mean, of the sovereign Hutt territory was, probably was wasn't the best idea. I would
0: Polster, whose name I've actually just forgotten what? now Oh, I'm such a bad person, I've forgotten his name oh, he'll come back he'll come back to me when this is over now. He did, he was the head of he was at Gallup, he was at, he was at Gallup polls, and he famously oh, Jones to piss me off James, keep talking. James keep talking, I'm going to find his name
1: find, whose name? The poll in
0: 1982, You told Michael to stop talking about your natural liquid assignment
1: Ah right, okay. Um, well, well, if it comes down to the fact that I'm going to start speaking, aren't I, and then you're always going to interrupt and say the name really loudly, aren't you? When you find it. Welcome to the podcast? That... <laughs> I'll start. Be halfway through a and Say that. I've got it. Sorry. only time speaking, I can find it for you, Dad. No, yeah,
0: I will find it. Find it. Are you
1: sure? It didn't, say, it didn't say anywhere though. Was it tell Michael Foote not to?
0: Yeah. Well, it's Robert Walster. Okay. So Robert Walster was our chief polling in Gallup polls, and he was Labour's chief pollster. And um, every time Michael Foote would talk about unilateral nuclear disarmament, our polls kept going downwards. So he said, oh, Michael, will you please shut up about this? It's, and he goes, listen, I will not be leader of this party after the election. I have a chance now I'll talk about this thing that I feel very passionate about and I'm not going to give up on a belief that I've held my whole life.
1: Yeah. I mean... You have to
0: respect him for that. I, I respect that, but it's such a balmy belief.
1: What? How you actual nuclear
0: disarmament? Mm-hmm. Disarming our nuclear weapons on our own, James?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be done with everybody, not no, the, not in the It's balmy. Yeah. I mean, there's no point in Britain just designing nuclear weapons without you should France. should always keep the weapons. Russia, in my viewers
0: have more nuclear weapons, not less. No, there's no need for more. We've got plenty. Oh, we need plenty more. We need two or three new ones. We've not had any new ones for 37 years. Let's get one new one in.
1: Dad, we have enough. We have enough nuclear warheads. No, we only to, have we only have Trident cruise That's not enough. you don't How much money are you buying to waste in nuclear weapons, Dad? About another four
0: billion a year. We wasted. Th- <laughs> we wasted. We wasted thirteen billion on buying PPE that
1: wasn't allowed to
0: even be used. Yes, Dad, but
1: those PPE try to protect people. You're just trying to
0: blow people up. No,
1: they are weapons do.
0: that you will never ever fire so long as you have them. So you,
1: so you're spending four billion pounds of weapons you're never going to use. Of course. Well, I, I think the leader of the opposition will field may with you there, though. James, we
0: are spending thirteen billion a year on three nuclear warheads that we are never ever going to fire. But yeah, the fact they have been there has kept world peace. Yeah. How close was it to the Cuban missile crisis, though? Very close, but Bobby Kennedy saved us.
1: No, one general there was there was Bobby. There was three Russian generals, three Russian generals in a submarine. And I, I hate the fact that I can't remember this guy's name because he practically saved the globe. He, he refused to give authorization because the other two mistakenly believed that the Russians were at war with America and, and were ordered to fire because there was a false alarm. So, two of them went and turned the key. And one guy said, no, I'm not doing it. And that one guy saved nuclear war. I didn't know that. I thought it was because Bobby got the missiles out of Turkey.
0: Obviously. Khrushchev the missiles out of Cuba. Obviously that as well was a a situation that helped quite a lot. So a Russian general refused to run through on Nikita
1: Khrushchev's orders. Yeah. I don't know.
0: That's
1: interesting, James. Khrushchev never uh, ordered a nuclear strike, but... the. And some of them mistakenly believed he did. Oh, okay. so they. So two of the three were ready to blow up the world. Interesting. Anyway, I'm not going to use that and ask around and go.
0: So go on, why do you think we lost in 83? Do you think it was because of the Tory policies or because we
1: were out of our minds? Well, the fact that there's a 144-seat majority, mm. you, have to, you have to give a tiny bit of credit to the factorism policies. Because you can't win 144 seats with no you can't win that down. Me... Jim Jim. Dow you cannot you cannot you cannot say that there's hundred and forty four seats and not one and not let's say ten percent of them agree with the factorism policies. No, I can
0: because in nineteen thirty five the Tories had a majority of over two hundred seats in the House of Commons only because there was no Labour opposition. <laughs> the Tories went from 439 to 42.4% of the vote. That is not an endorsement of facturism. It's a Falklands factor combined with us being gaga. Absolutely. I think, I think Falklands were the biggest part in this
1: without a shadow. Look at thing. the biggest swing. Yeah.
0: Where did the votes go? Labour went down by 9%. SDP went up by 10.5%. Where do you think the votes went? Was it Labour voters going to the Tories? No, it was Labour voters going to the SDP Liberal Alliance and therefore leaving the Labour Party and because the Tory vote held steady, the Tories got bigger majorities and gained seats. Yeah. I genuinely believe the country did not vote for Thatcherite policies. They were just doing a massive fuck-off to us because we were talking gaga nonsense.
1: Well, the fact, the fact that I think, I think there were two reasons why, oh no, three reasons why. I don't, to be fair, I don't think it was either the Labour Party's just the left or Factorism. I think it was two reasons. I think it was Falklands. Yep. Yeah. And I think the other reason was the fact that SDP split the Labour vote. Yep, yeah, entirely agree. Those are the two. I don't think it, obviously, there are, you can say it was some, you can say it was Labour's just the left that caused issues. You can people can argue that it's factorism as well. Well you can but because the labor The the two major the, SDP. Reasons, the two major reasons though for this was the SDP and the and the Falklands. And I think mm. those who had to take priority. I think those are the two reasons why Labour lost. Yeah, I don't I mean, disagree. Which which obviously means that it was Labour's loss rather than Conservative victory, like usually. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean
0: eighty seven was the only election of the four, which was Tories win, Labour lost. Tories win it, not Labour losing it. Yeah, because ninety two was definitely Labour losing, not Tory winning.
1: Yeah, we should have absolutely won. We should. That was our ele-
0: ours for the winning, and yet we blew that one as well. Um, yeah, but but obviously, so the Tories went from three hundred thirty nine to three hundred ninety seven MPs. Labour went from two, 269 to 209 MPs. And the SDP Liberal Alliance went from 11 to
1: 24.
0: <laughs> Share of the vote. Tories, 42.4%. That's down one5 Labour, 27.4%. That's down 95 SDP Liberal Alliance, 25.4%. That's up about 13 points. Yeah. Bit unfair to the SDP Liberal Alliance. (laughs) Well, one quarter of the vote, 24 seats for you. 27% of the vote, 209 seats for you. (laughs) But having said that, I'm always proud that way because that means the Labour Party is able to rebuild after that crazy defeat. Right. This episode, shall we go on, or shall we call it
1: to an end now and carry on Tuesday? I think we should carry. On. I feel like the I feel we should carry on Tuesday because I feel like the right. eighty-seven, ninety-two, and ninety-two, ninety-seven would be quite quick compared yeah. to. The two. Oh, so we have got eighty-three, eighty-seven, eighty-seven, ninety-two, ninety-two, ninety-seven,
0: and this episode we've done seventy-four, seventy-nine, and eighty. That's in Yeah. So, what we'll do is is on the Tuesday. We'll come about... Wait, are you still for Easter?
1: No, no.
0: That case, we'll come back at... We'll start about 6 and finish about 7.40? Yeah, that works. All right. We'll do that then. And we'll keep informing you the listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I actually have enjoyed it a lot. Um, and yeah, in, we'll see you on Tuesday. Yeah, see you then.